The scripture reading for today is Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Grace and peace to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're going lower tech today. Going to check up on your listening skills, pure listening skills. So if you want to be turning to the text of Matthew chapter 1, if you're not already there, we're going to be spending most of our time in Matthew 1. You probably don't see it in your translation, but the word Genesis occurs twice in this chapter. One is in the first verse of this chapter. Your translation may say genealogy. The second time it's going to be used is in verse 18, which is actually where our scripture reading began today. And that is where your translation will probably say the birth of Jesus. So the genealogy of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the Greek word there is the word Genesis. Now, if you know anything about that word, it simply means the beginnings. There's something about the beginning of Jesus that is going on in this text. Really, the first 17 verses of this are going to give us the beginning story of Jesus, the origin story, we may say, part one. Verses 18 through 25 are going to give us part two. All of this is part of the story, the backstory, we may say, the family history of Jesus. Now, I think some of the translations will hesitate to use that word. They're more comfortable with something like genealogy and then birth later on because we're uncomfortable with talking about Jesus having origins. Let's say this up front today. We are not saying, and Matthew's not saying, the Bible does not say, that the second person of the Godhead, the spirit of Jesus, has any point of beginning. He has always been. You read the beginning of the Gospel of John, and that's very clear. In the beginning was the Word. He, he, he has no beginning. But his human self does have a beginning. It has a backstory. It has an origin. His incarnation has a genesis. And this is what Matthew is getting at in his gospel. Because what is a gospel? A gospel as a book is presenting us with an overview of the life of Jesus and the significance of the events of Jesus. And Matthew doesn't just start with the birth. He backs up and tells us how we get to Jesus, at least through his human lineage, even before he is born. Now, having said all of that, let's leave this text for a few moments. 
to talk about us. Today's lesson is called Family History. Let's play along with this scenario for a bit this morning. Let's say you were going to see a therapist. There's an issue that you were struggling with currently in your life and you want to talk to someone about it. You want to receive some counsel about that issue. Now, if you've got a good therapist and you and the therapist have agreed that your time is not a factor here, that you're committed to coming to multiple sessions here and you realize that you're not going to be able to talk through this whole issue in just a few moments, then one thing that the therapist is probably going to do is say, okay, well, let's slow down a little bit. I want to hear a little more about you. I want to hear a little more about your story. I want to hear about your upbringing. In fact, the therapist may even ask you about some past generations in your family to look back at not only your experience with your parents, but maybe even their experience that they had growing up. What kind of environment did they grow up in? What can you tell me about them? Now, why would you do that? Why would you dig out the past when the past can be very painful to dig out? Well, the truth is that at least in part, we need to acknowledge the past illuminates, it brings light to the present. Part of our story is going to be bound in who we are as a family. Our background, our family history is important. Some of you may have done research on your family history. You may have been excited to find some things. You may have been appalled at some other things you may have found in that family history. If you've seen the movie Hitch, Will Smith's character, his name is Hitch in the story, and he is, he's got this what he thinks is a perfect date plan for this, uh, this female that he is trying to get acquainted with. She's played by Eva Mendez. I don't remember her name in the movie. But he, uh, they rent jet skis and they're in New York, so he takes her out to Ellis Island on jet skis. And when they get there, he's got it all set up where he has wanting to surprise her by looking at this register of immigrants that have come to this country. And this goes back several generations. And he takes her to the place where she can read the first member of her family and her heritage that came to the United States. Now you can see her shocked and you're, you see tears coming to her eyes and you expect her to throw her arms around him in this moment of emotion and thank him so much for, for showing this. This is great. I get to see some of my family heritage right here. She actually ends up shouting out in a rage and runs off because of the emotion she's experiencing in that moment. And the reason why is that particular person who was the first member of her family to arrive in this country ended up being a serial killer. He ended up being someone who made a lot of bad headlines for her family. Talk about a ruined first date, not going as you expected it to go. The whole point is, especially in a shame and honor culture, and a lot of places in the world are more familiar with that than, than, than we are. We've, we've kind of moved away from that in past generations in some ways, but many of you are from a shame and honor culture, and, and many of you who even who grew up here, that, that's something that's very real to you. The shame and honor not just of your reputation, but of your families. She was in pain because this, this family history actually brought up something that she'd been trying to forget about. 
something that brought shame on her family, that tainted her family's legacy. She didn't like that lineage that she had because of that individual who was in it in many ways. Most of those were thankful for maybe 20 years. Maybe I wouldn't have been looking forward to turning into them. We were shaped by our family. I'm finding more and more all the time than what I said I would my parents. Throughout your life, genetics are real. But what about character traits? If you have a parent who is an alcoholic, say, say, hey, you last is very, very important. And so Matthew opens up that way. You're going to read a lot of things that are given to us in the text. Forty-two generations are mentioned here. More prone to being abusive or to your kids. Painful territory here, maybe, for some of you. Family history of not just who will be more susceptible to alcoholism. If you have a parent who was abusive to each other, parents who were abusive to each other, you. Statistics say that you will be your distant family, your own experience in your own home growing up. Some of you may have fond memories that one darkness that you would care in some way if you were you who is looking at the light of your future Messiah, that you're not people you would want to include. The first is My story is, and that's what going to is that you are a product of nature plus nurture. Nature being your, your genes, your family history, everything that's, that's led up to this point, and nurture, the environment you grew up in in your home and your culture that you live in. Those two factors together determine who you are. Your story is written ahead of time, and you're bound to it. Let's acknowledge today that our family history does play a role in us. I'm finding more and more all the time ways that I said I would not be like my parents. And yet, and yet I, I am in many ways. Most of those 
ways I'm thankful for, whereas maybe 20 years ago, <laughs> maybe I wouldn't have been looking forward to turning into them. We are shaped by our family. But are you just a product of your DNA? Are you just nature plus nurture? Or is there more going on to your story? Coming back to our text of Matthew 1, why do I go into all of that today? Because your Genesis story may have a lot more in common with the Genesis story, the background story of Jesus, than you may have realized. And while strict determinism that everything, it not only robs you of responsibility, you know, this is, just, this is just the way I am and I just got to accept it and move on, but that also robs you of hope. But Jesus' story as we are going to see, is tainted with scandal, with shame, with a setup that if a psychiatrist was looking at that or if anyone was analyzing that, would say, this child is not going to do well. He's not set up for success based on his nature plus nurture. And yet, if you understand his entire story, you're going to see a much different outcome. Today, spend a few minutes with me as we walk through the origins of Jesus as a human being. His background. It's not a pristine pedigree. The first part of this, we may say, is about his nature, his genetics, his family line. You may say, why spend so much time on that? It was very important to the Jews who Matthew primarily of all the four Gospels is written primarily to a Jewish audience. That's his original audience. And you you will know that if you're reading Genesis, if you're reading Chronicles, if you're reading any of these books that are giving you periods of history, connecting the current situation with the past is very important. And so Matthew opens up that way. You're going to read a lot of things that are given to us in this text. Forty-two generations are mentioned here. Now, I'm not going to read all the names, thankfully. But those 42 generations, the way these genealogies work, they're not meant to be exhaustive. The Hebrew way of giving genealogy does not necessarily include every generation. These have been selected for the significance of the names and of the numbers to make a point that Matthew is trying to get across here. If you do the math, you're going to find three sets of 14 that are given to us. You could also say those are six sets of seven, which lead us to Jesus, who is the seventh set, the number of completeness. The three points which structure the family history are Abraham, who was the recipient of the covenant and seed promises from God. David, who's the ultimate Old Testament figure for what a king should be, the idyllic king, even though he was very flawed. And then the exile, 
Part of the point that Matthew is making here and that by giving us this background of Jesus is that the whole backstory of the entire Old Testament, the questions that are raised that are maybe unresolved by the time you've read through your Old Testament, you get through those 39 books and you say, well, wait a minute, what, okay, where's this all going? Well, Matthew is saying up front that Jesus is bringing a resolution to all those questions that were raised, three of them specifically. Who was the seed of Abraham who was to come? Who was this messianic king in the line of David? And when are God's people truly going to return from their exile and have a kingdom of their own again? Jesus, as the rest of the story is going to play out, is going to be the answer to those questions, all three of them. That's why those three points are picked here in Matthew's genealogy at the beginning. But if that's all that we take from Matthew 1, then we're missing a lot of the other things that are here. This is not a pristine pedigree. Abraham told lies. David committed adultery, basically had murder attached to that as well. Others in this list that you read through, if you dig deep into the scriptures, you're going to see that the Bible highlights their flaws. If I was just fabricating a family history of someone that I wanted to, to present to you as this is our rightful king, he's got the, the pedigree that should lead us to believe that he's, he's the only one worthy of inheriting the throne. He's the expected one. It would not be the family history that Matthew gives us. Usually in the family history, and you're going to see most of these names here are males, that was typical of how Jews would share their family history. But maybe because of that, we should take note that there are five females who are mentioned here. They didn't have to be. Matthew could have given this to us without mentioning their names. But five of them are mentioned here. Listen to the stories of these women and the stories they are connected with. They each have some scandal attached to them in some way. If you were a Jew who is looking at the line of your future Messiah, these are not people you would want to include. The first is Tamar. She is a woman who poses as a prostitute and has the child Perez, whose name you will see in that family history, as a result of an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. Strike one against the family history. Two, Rahab. Rahab is not an Israelite. She's not from the line of Abraham. She's a Canaanite. She's a woman who is called a harlot. She may have even actually run the brothel in Jericho where she ends up hiding spies. Yet she survives and is in this family history of Jesus. Jesus. 
But that's not someone that you would necessarily be proud of being in your family line if you were looking for a pure pedigree. That's strike two. Three, Ruth. You may say, well, isn't Ruth this wonderful character? Well, yes, she is. In fact, all of these have some good, some really commendable qualities if you dig under the surface when you look at them. But again, think of this in the way that the world would perceive this. Ruth is not an Israelite either. She's a Moabite. So she's another foreigner who is creating a family lineage that is ethnically mixed. Those that want to trace their heritage all the way back to Abraham, some of these Jews, and here you've got a couple of foreigners that are part of this. Strike three. Bathsheba is our next one. The text literally says of her, her of Uriah, the wife of Uriah. She only becomes the wife of David after he has had relations with her and then has had her husband killed off. Adultery and murder attached to the very reason that David could then take her as a wife and have the child Solomon who is in the lineage of Jesus. Strike four. And fifth, it's the final woman who's mentioned at the end of this. A young, presumably teenage girl who has wound up pregnant before her wedding day. Her name is Mary. Let's spend a little more time here because the account slows down to deal with her and Joseph a little bit here. Matthew deals with this story mainly from Joseph's perspective. He tells us that this young couple who are betrothed, they're in their engagement period, but they have not been officially married yet. They certainly haven't consummated that marriage. And yet here is Joseph with his fiancée, we may call her, who is now pregnant. Joseph doesn't know how that happened, but he can do the math and realize if he's not the father, someone else is. The text tells us that Joseph, as a righteous man, he's a just man, he is not looking to bring any more shame on Mary and on her reputation than, than he has to, so he plans on quietly sending her away, not dragging her name through the mud publicly as a result of what he has concluded, and that is that she has been promiscuous. He would have every reason to believe that. And he does until an angel shows up with a message to him. Think about how bizarre this message would be if you heard this. This woman who you had intended to marry, yes, she is pregnant, but yes, she is still a virgin. The child that she has is from God. 
The Holy Spirit has brought this about. Think about how bizarre that would be to hear that message and what level of faith that would take to hear that message because here's what's going to happen. Mary receives a message of what's really going on. Joseph receives a message of what's really going on. There are going to be some magi who come from the east who, who uh, know what's really going on. Some shepherds are going to receive a message of what's really going on. When Jesus is going to be presented as a baby and in Jerusalem, there's a couple of people that are mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, uh, Simeon and, and Anna, and they know what's going on. They've, they have a message from God about this. But those are the few. What are most people going to think about Mary and Joseph and their child that they have had? They are going to associate them with sin, with scandal, with shame. And the text doesn't tell us a whole lot about, the, about Jesus' upbringing. It's going to tell us that they're going to be in danger right away. You've got that as a factor as a young kid. They're going to have to go to Egypt and, and stay probably with some, some family, some, some uh, other Jewish communities down there until it would be safe for them to come back. You've got that as an obstacle early on in the life of Jesus. But you see some hints otherwhere in the scriptures of how this family was viewed. John chapter 8, Jesus as an adult is in a discussion with a crowd of Jews and whenever he is, is being up front with them and he is trying to get at the heart of what they are and the life that they are living and he's getting at their heritage there. He says that you're not really of your father Abraham. They're so focused on their heritage. You know what one of their responses is going to be to him? At least we were not born out of fornication. This is how the reputation that Jesus and his family had in a shame and honor culture. Strike five on his pedigree. Five of them all connected with these ladies that Matthew goes out of the way to mention. And he didn't have to mention them, but he does. Because the Holy Spirit through Matthew wants us to know that Jesus' heritage, his human lineage, is tainted with scandal. He's got what the world would call bad genes. His family is troubled. Yet look at closely at what is said to Joseph by this angel. One, this child is of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of Genesis, there's another book about beginnings, which begins with an environment of wild and waste until God's spirit or breath is there on the surface of the waters, ready to bring about something new. Here, once again, we have God's spirit present bringing about something new, and that is God in the flesh. Two. Two names are given to him in this text. One, his birth name that he will be called most frequently, and that is Jesus. It's a name which means Yahweh saves. 
Additionally, there's another name. It's more of a descriptive name that is given to us as a fulfillment of the Isaiah chapter 7, and that is the name Emmanuel. And that name means God with us. The divine and the human are meeting in Jesus. He is completely both. And three, he is told that this Jesus will save his people from their sins. His identity is established, and as an outgrowth of his identity, we also see his destiny. Now, you may have read through this account of, of Matthew many times when we look at the, the beginnings of Jesus. But think with me for just a moment about the shock value of reading this for the first time. Family history. Here are scandal after scandal after scandal, bad genes. This is the nature, human lineage that's coming into this. Nurture. The surrounding text is going to tell us that, that not only is, is Jesus' own immediate family tainted by scandal, that's the reputation they're going to have, but they also, he's brought up and he's faced with a dangerous environment right off the bat. They have to leave, they have to go elsewhere, they're a migrant family for, for some of this time. And in the midst of all of that, the text tells us that this is the person who is God in the flesh, who is destined to be the Savior of his people. That's a shocking statement to say that about this person. It is wholly unexpected. God has a way of working through the unexpected, doesn't he? The world sees Jesus as shameful. God the Father sees him as honorable. The world sees him as impure, guilt by association. Do we do that with families? Do we say, well, their whole family is bad news, so that person is too? Guilt by association. God the Father sees him as pure. His family heritage is important, it plays a role. But it does not define him. He is not just a product of his DNA. Now since he's here to save us from our sins, let's bring this back to us. We see in his story our story. I haven't done an extensive family tree. Some of you may have done that. But I know that I'm going to find, if I look, I'm going to find a lot of people that I may not be proud to be associated with. You may have those in your immediate family, if we're being honest. We see our story in Jesus. We see embarrassments in our family history. We've inherited some genetic traits that <laughs> we may wish were different. Some traits are mutable, some are immutable. Some we're thankful for, some we may resent. But God says you are much more than your DNA. Walk a step farther with me into your family history, into your immediate family, your childhood. This is dangerous territory because I know there are some dark memories here for some of you. 
whatever good or bad you see in your parents or in your immediate family experience as you look back, you have to acknowledge however good or bad it was. Your parents had shortcomings. Your parents are sinners like you are. And for some of you, their sins or their shortcomings may have left some deep scars on you. Some of which you may not even fully realize. And if, you, if they were abusive in some way, you may feel you are doomed to become abusive too. If they abused a substance, you may feel you are doomed to abuse a substance. If they were wrapped up in some kind of scandal, you may just assume, well, this is my family legacy. This is my blood. This is who I am. There's nothing I can do about it. It's just in your blood. Your family's been disgraceful. You will continue the legacy. And Jesus comes along and says, look at my family history. Look at the challenges my family had growing up. Look at the labels put on us. Look at how people treated us. But look how my story turned out in the end. Salvation is not hereditary. Your value is not hereditary. For those who said to Jesus, we have Abraham as our father, he said, no, you don't. You may have his genes, you may have his biological DNA, but you're not behaving as if he's your father. And to those who said, we, we are nobodies, Jesus said, no, you're not. You're all sons of God if you have the faith of Abraham, whether you have the biological DNA or not. You are much more than your family history. If you're afraid of shame in your blood, then you need to be washed in his blood. In Jesus you will have the greatest pedigree imaginable. He says, because I am God of the universe in human flesh, I will call you my brothers and sisters. I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers and sisters, according to Hebrews chapter 2. You're in solidarity with me. You're part of my family. You can call God Abba, your father, just like I do. My challenge to you today is simply this. If you see any of your family story in these origins of Jesus, then make the rest of Jesus' story your story too. That's a message of hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our families. And as imperfect as they are, and some of us who may be here experiencing pain when they think about their family history and their own childhood, the shortcomings, the sins of our families. 
the shame that may be there. Father, we pray that by looking at Jesus' story, that we will will see that despite the shame that was attached to him, the way the world perceived him, that you affirmed time and time again that he was your son. He was well-pleasing in your sight. You love him. And may we hear that same message from you today as our Father. May we come to you and cry, Abba, by your Spirit today, thanking you that we can be part of your family, that we can share in the blood of Jesus, our Lord. Thank you for his story of overcoming being our story of overcoming. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Today, if you're here struggling with something, we can pray about something that we've talked about today. Or if you would like to to be washed in the blood of Jesus, to make his story your story. That's what baptism is. It is saying that I want to identify with the story of Jesus. I want to confess my faith in him as my Lord, as my Savior, as the one who was raised from the dead. I'm ready to turn from the, the direction and whatever shame or anything else that I'm struggling with. And I want to submit to Jesus. I want to be joined to him. And what happens in that water of baptism is that when you go down, you are buried with Jesus. You are raised with Jesus. The old man dies with him so that the new man who comes out is now bound in the story of Jesus. And his story is one of purity. It's one of holiness. And now that is what you have. And you walk with him from that day forward. If that's something you need to do today to make his story your own, then we invite you to come as together we stand and as we see.